I often have this image in my in my mind of uh, as if we're all walking around with our heads down, looking at our toes or something like that, and, and thinking, you know, and worrying and you know, all this stuff in our heads. And then right above us is the light, you know? It's like, oh, if you could just lean back a little bit, quiet your mind, look up, you go, oh, you know, I'm in, I mean, I'm simplifying it into a metaphor, of course, but or an image, but uh, you realize that we are, we are home. We, we, and, and so the, the great work, if you, if you want to put it that way, for individuals is learning to trust that. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I'm joined by teacher, writer, and co-organizer of the annual Spirit Plant Medicine Conference, Stephen Gray, to discuss the recently released book he edited and contributed to, How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World. Among many other topics, Stephen discusses humanity's current death and rebirth process, the importance of slowing down in order to be present to our true nature, and the fact that we live in the midst of a miracle. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Stephen Gray is a teacher and writer on spiritual subjects in sacramental medicines. He has worked extensively with Tibetan Buddhism, the Native American Church, and with entheogenic medicines. He is also a conference and workshop organizer, leader, and speaker. He was editor and contributor to Cannabis and Spirituality, an explorer's guide to an ancient plant spirit ally, and author of Returning to Sacred World, a spiritual toolkit for the emerging reality. He joins me today to discuss the recently released book he edited and contributed to, How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World, Visionary and Indigenous Voices Speak Out. Stephen, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Yeah, thank you. Yes, well, I'm really looking forward to speaking with you. The collection that has just come out, How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World, is really impressive. There's a lot of different voices in there. You've got psychedelic visionaries, indigenous voices, feminist voices, shamans, activists, artists, and scientists, and some pretty well-known names in the psychedelic and theogenic community. And I guess the first question I want to ask, I'm going to save the really big question. And the really big question is, well, how can psychedelics help save the world? But I thought that maybe we could take a moment for you to maybe speak a little bit about your journey in in this field for anyone who may not be familiar with you and your works. Yes, thanks for the question, Nick. Well, geez, I'm not sure how much you want to know about all that. But let, let, let me put it this way. I came of age at a particularly interesting time when there was a confluence of energies that opened the world up or opened the West up to Asian spirituality at the pretty much exact same time as there was, as a door opened and in flooded interest in availability of psychedelics. In those days, we're talking about the very late 1960s and the early 1970s, LSD was prime among them in terms of availability and usage and so on. Anyway, I was really interested in both of those things. You know, I, I recognized, you know, they talk about the the, the, the wounded warrior, or, you know, wounded healer. I, I don't consider myself a healer in any direct way, but you you know, usually there's some sort of a wound that 
drives you on. And I definitely felt like I needed to sort of, so to speak, go to the repair shop when I was coming of age at that time. And, and I was just, I think I was just a born seeker anyway, you know, for those people that don't mind the, the potentially woo-woo component here. I, I, I think many of my past lives have been around these kinds of worlds and so on. And so the journey continues as it were. Any case, that that's what triggered my interest in these matters at that time, coming into you know young adulthood, and so it just continued from there. There was a there was a meme around at the time, which which was amongst the what we used to call the counterculture, which are pejoratively to some degree known as the hippies these days, you know. But nonetheless, this meme was that there you you may have had through through LSD or some other psychedelic, you may have had a an opening into unconditional reality, you know, shook hands with God or whatever. But now what? You know, how are you going to deal with that? How, can, how are you going to bring that into your daily life? And for many people, that became spiritual practice. And for me, that was Buddhism. So I got involved in Tibetan Buddhism for quite a long time. Eventually found my way back to the psychedelics. Thank you to, thanks to Terence McKenna, who hooked those two things up. Indigenous spiritual use, ancient use of psychedelics was a trigger for me. And that got me back into this world again and it just kind of went from there i you know started going to ceremonies got involved with the native american church went down to peru a couple of times for ayahuasca ceremonies and such like and eventually got involved with this conference that i've been co-organizing for 12 11 12 years now and the books that you mentioned okay and yeah. what's the name of the conference does it have a specific name or does it have a different mm-hmm. name each year no, same name every year, Spirit Plant Medicine Conference. It's essentially the exact same mission as the book. They, they kind of go together in a way. And in fact, seven of our speakers from this year are also in the book, and seven of our past presenters are in the book as well. So there's a real interweaving there. Yeah. All right. Wonderful. Well, yeah, let's kind of jump into this question. How can psychedelics help save the world? Because... I think that my audience may have a glimmer of how that may be, but Mm -hmm. others may not. Uh So how can they help us? Right. Well, that's that, as you say, is the big question and not a simple one, no doubt. And and also it depends on the sort of level of experience and interest of your of your viewers or listeners as well, Nick. Mm -hmm. So I'll try to give a, you know, an answer that covers you know, the the full classroom, so to speak, as much as possible. Okay, so here's a simple way of putting it. When the patient is in an extreme or severe or advanced state of illness, strong medicines are often required. This is a literal thing, of course, in the sense of things like situations like cancer and so on, but it's also an, a, an apt metaphor for the spiritual illness of the planet, of humanity, So here's my 100,000 years of history in 60 seconds kind of idea. This is one way of looking at our, our, our predicament, you might say. You might say that we have gotten, as a species, more or less generalizing, of course, lost spiritually. We've become disconnected from who we are in these major societies. There's pockets of it over here and there have survived and some threads of it in indigenous communities here and there certainly historically some of them have had a connection to earth and spirit in in a way that that was sort of lost with the major civilizations anyway this disconnection this sense that we are separate from everything separate from nature separate from spirit separate from our divine nature as it were has brought us 
along with perhaps some other influences out of our control. You know, who knows how much of climate change has been human driven and how much of it is just an part of the inevitable cycles that have always gone on. Nonetheless, we've come to a point where we simply cannot continue business as usual. It's destroying the planet. You mentioned before we put the recording on that, you know, climate change is a huge concern for you and as it is for, you know, many millions of people. So this is the advanced state of illness issue that I mentioned. So one might say, or you might say that incremental change, piecemeal change here and there, scattershot around the world in the different realms of economic sociology and so on and so on are not necessarily, are not going to be big and dramatic enough to change the course overall of the human trajectory of affairs, right? So what the psychedelics can do, and and I and I don't, I'm, you know, I'm not on a high horse saying they're, you know, the only solution to our problem or anything silly like that. But I think they potentially, and that's a key word there, potentially, in terms of how they're used, who uses them, in what context, and that sort of thing. But optimally, at their best, in the right hands, the right kind of situations where they're understood properly for what they can do, they are our most potent tools. There's no doubt about that in my mind. Or, you know, and I didn't just, you know, <laughs> pull that out of a hat, you know, I mean, there's millions of people know that what the psychedelics can do, here's a simple way of putting it for the sort of perhaps less familiar with these two kind of overlapping, you might say, or interwoven um, uh, functions. So one of one of the functions, and again, they're not separate really, but one of them is that they could be seen as truth serums. They're sometimes referred to as unspecific or nonspecific amplifiers. They open things up. They open up channels in the brain. You know, neurotransmitters are triggered, and 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 the result. And one of the results of that is that they show you yourself. Potentially. For example, I've had a lot of connection with the Native American church, which is a peyote using religion in the United States in particular, but also in Canada. I used to go to a lot of their meetings, they call them, down in the United States, in Washington State. And basically, that it's, it's legal for Native Americans, and not really for non-Natives, but it's legal. And that was a law passed by Congress. Now, think about that for a second. The United States, a country that's been afraid of altered states other than those induced by alcohol and mass delusion throughout much of its history, passed a law granting the use of a psychedelic quote-unquote drug, albeit for spiritual purposes and in a very constrained you know, context. So why did they do that? Why did they approve that? Well, because the, the, the petitioners were able to prove, oh, that was part of, well, actually, there was another reason. It was a freedom of religion issue as well, and I don't want to diverge off into that particularly. However, religion, other uh, religions uh, supported this for that reason, which is I don't know. I find that kind of amazing in itself. You know, real conservative religious people who would probably just, you know, freak out at the idea of using a drug for anything, you know, like that supported this measure for on the on the basis of religious freedom. In any case, the other main reason was because they were able to show many case examples of people who came into this TP and took this medicine and changed their lives. And so basically what that medicine 
you know, what they would say, you know, is that it shows you yourself. It shows you where your wounds are. It shows you where, you know, where your problems from your past are. And it shows you if you're on a destructive course, it shows you that there's something else. There's something bigger than that. And that's the other side of it, which I say isn't really separate from the first one. So first one being the truth serum, so to speak. And the second one being that this is what's, I think, really interesting and not always understood about the psychedelics. This is not a drug experience in the sense. We're not talking about hallucinations. In other words, what we're not saying is that these things take you out of reality. They take you into reality. What many, many people would say is that is that what we call reality, Buddhists have done an amazing job of analyzing and describing this for 2,500 years. It's basically the world that most people live in, basically almost everybody, The real, what we call reality is an illusion. It's based on the illusion of our separateness from everything, what you might sort of oversimplify, simply call the ego, right? The, the, the self that thinks it's separate, and, and there's a huge amount of struggle and confusion involved in that. They call it the samsaric mind, the mind of confusion, right? So um, for whatever reason, because they open up channels in the brain that have been shut down, these psychedelics potentially, again, open you up to unconditioned reality and show you that you are in the context of a divine, loving, creative, eternal reality. You know, you watched, if you watch, well, there's a wonderful film. There were two of them, actually, Dosed and Dosed 2, documentaries that were done by a couple of gentlemen from the Vancouver area up here where I live. Dosed 2 takes, follows a woman who had cancer and started using psilocybin for it. And that's just one example. Actually, a more a better known example would be the movie that Paul Stamets was associated with called Fantastic Fungi or Fungi. And in the later part of that movie, they take two cases from one of the Johns Hopkins University studies of this amazing study they did, end of life population, giving them psilocybin. Something like... <sighs> You know, 35% of them had the most mystical experience of their lives. And everyone, pretty much every one of those, if I'm not mistaken, of those people changed their attitude about their cancer altogether. Like, like maybe this one, this, you know, very brief anecdote will su suffice for the moment. One of the women interviewed in the film said, <clears throat> and these were not people who were familiar with psychedelics, by the way, generally. This woman said that uh, she said to herself, I guess, basically just before going into the encounter with the mushroom, I just want to come out of this as okay as when I went in. You know, that's what I'm worried about that, you know, it'll kind of, you know, I'll fall apart or something like that or go crazy or whatever. So she, she, you know, she took the medicine in the Johns Hopkins protocol, eye shades, carefully curated playlist, lots of prep for months prior, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, she's now lying down on the couch in this comfortable environment and the medicine comes on fully and she hears a voice in her head saying, do you think I would disrespect my own creation? <laughs> you know, so you get that message that you are in, we're all home. It's just that we don't know it, you know, that's, that's the kind of the great promise and also the great tragedy of human existence. We are already home. There's nowhere to go. It's eternal. It's, it's, it's love in action, you might say, that steers the stars as the old song used to go. And when people take a psychedelic, they often realize that. And again, I just want to stress that context is all important for that. You're, 
you're, you're not only not necessarily going to have any experience like that if you take something like that casually on your own without protection without guidance without a container ritual without prayers and intentions and so on and so on but you might also be risking your mental health because this is another answer to the question really another way of looking at what these psychedelics do is they're ego dissolvers potentially right so what that means is they potentially dissolve you temporarily out of this habitual construction that you've put together that this ego so to speak this illusion of being separate and so on since we've spent our whole lives putting it together and maintaining it being knocked out of it can be terrifying. And if you don't have a context for that, there is a lot of people that you might call, well, we, in the day, we used to call them acid casualties. There were, I think, I don't know what, if there's any study been done of tracking any of these people, but I'm pretty sure there were a lot because I know enough, you know, a handful of people just anecdotally that, that um, you know, they, they get into these spaces because these things can pull up your worst trauma. This is what the work of Stanislav Grof was all about. <clears throat> the great Czech psychiatrist who was the head of the Prague Psychiatric Hospital and supervised thousands of LSD therapy sessions when it was still legal back in the 50s and 60s. And uh, basically, <clears throat> more often than not, people without any, without, you know, sort of being directed there, went to their primary trauma or wound. And so it could show these people these things, right? And if so if you're taken into if suddenly realizing that you're this deeply wounded person and you didn't want to know that, that you can get stuck there. You, you know, if you, if you resist something, if you back off with, from something and generate a fear wall around it, that can, can stick with you in some cases for your whole life. And if it's just too much, some people just end up on the street, so to speak, you know, it's, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting in the sense that you, you brought up a lot. So there are a few points I want to kind of. I did, on. didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I guess one of the first things I wanted to say is uh -huh. that, you know, we're talking about this you know, the question how psychedelics can help save the world. Mm -hmm. And I caught myself and I thought, well, you know, maybe the place to begin should have been, why does the world need saving? Mm -hmm. and I think it's obvious to even the most casual observer, right? That, you know, there's the climate crisis and you note in the book, this sort of mm -hmm. rampant materialism, there's social and economic inequalities and spiritual disconnect. Mm -hmm. And it seems like we have a tendency to see each of those as its own separate thing. Mm -hmm. But what I was thinking as you were speaking is, but there is a sort of common cause, which mm -hmm. is humanity mm -hmm. uh, and all of those. And mm -hmm. that may be one way that psychedelics can help heal the world because all of these problems are being generated from wounded beings. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, by the way, I don't, I, I don't mean to pass the buck and blame the publisher particularly, but the, the save the world phrase was not my choice and oh, okay, wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't have been my first choice, but just because right. it has other associations that yeah. sometimes are a little questionable, you know, I, I, I would have preferred to say trans, help transform you know, yeah. the world, or if it right. was, uh, or if I could have a whole page of a title, be something like, help transform the current trajectory, unsustainable and dysfunctional trajectory of human affairs or something right. like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, so 
I don't know if there was a question in there particularly, but basically I agree with you that it is all connected. And I think that is ultimately the central message that, again, as I mentioned earlier, you know, piecemeal stabs at incremental change aren't, aren't really going to do it. Here's an example I just read in the newspaper this morning. The country of Norway has made great strides in electrifying their infrastructure, in particular electric cars and so on. Meanwhile, their use of fossil fuels has gone up. Wow. And because the, the shrinkage of energy use has not, from, from electrifying, has not overbalanced the increasing need for, you know, fossil fuels for one reason or another, increasing wealth in the country, immigration, and so on and so on, right? So, you know, electric vehicles, you know, lovely as they sound, and in fact, I own one, I have no illusions that they are not, they're just a, a drop in the bucket, as it were. The, certainly, if everybody was driving an EV around my city, the air would be cleaner in the city itself, but there are all kinds of peripheral costs associated in the cradle to grave aspect of things. So, yeah, I think without a radical change of consciousness, then it's not going to be enough. You know, and as you know, you mentioned earlier that you've inter interviewed Chris Bache. He's probably my favorite visionary on this. And, and that's why I put his chapter first in the book after the forward and the introduction, because he kind of lays out the big picture, which is that we are in a death rebirth cycle. You know, it's, it's, it's a serious concept to you know, get your mind around, especially for our culture, which has gone so far away from a kind of a religious overview. You know, it's kind of interesting in a way that <clears throat> the religions of our past in our culture have failed us to a large degree because they haven't been based enough on experience. They've been a little too much based on beliefs and concepts and control, actually, frankly. <clears throat> However, they did at least provide some kind of an encompassing overview of, you know, of meaning, I guess you could say. And now with the, with the disappearance or the increasing disappearance of adherence to these religions, I think more and more people are lost. Mm. You know, they, they, you know, it's all, you know, just like me and my material, you know, how do I make a career? How do I put enough you know, food on the table, et cetera, et cetera, which are all essential, of course. But what is it that gives people a sense of hope and meaning in life? You know, well, the psychedelics potentially can reconnect you to those that, you know, our, your connection to yourself, to nature, you know, people, psychedelic people often talk a lot about how it, it reconnects them to the appreciation, understanding of nature. I mean, if you, it, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, set and setting or context or container are really important, but, you know, in milder doses, for example, say, you know, a somewhat milder dose of psilocybin mushrooms, not, I don't mean a, a microdose, but somewhere between there and what Terrence McKenna would have called a heroic <laughs> dose, you know, you could potentially be out in the woods if you feel safe, you know, and you know where you are, and maybe if you're with somebody else or other people. And if you're able to, again, quoting Terrence, sit down, shut up and pay attention, in this case, perhaps minus the sit down, just, you know, walking, <clears throat> you know, the beauty is incredible. Um, and in fact, regardless of the psychedelics, I think a great quote-unquote drug or prescription for people would be spend a lot more time in nature. And if you're living in the middle of the city, just, you know, even just go and sit beside a tree, for gosh sakes, you know, or smoke a joint and sit in front of a Gerbera in full bloom and just like sit there, like quiet your mind 
and just look at this thing, you know, the, the miracle. I mean, we live in the midst of a miracle. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's just absolutely stunning how a beautiful and intelligent the design of the whole world, of the whole, the whole concept, everything is, you know, the mere fact that anything exists and that this, on this planet, everything is so inter, interconnected, interdependent, you know, I mean, if we had like, I don't know what it would be. I'm not a scientist, but just at a wild guess, if we had like 3% more oxygen as a total, you know, we'd be in trouble. If we had 3% less, we'd be in trouble, right? You know, if there was more carbon dioxide or nitrogen in the air, you know, we could be gone, right? Everything's connected. I, I love the fact, I mean, I'm wandering a little here, but I think it's all relevant. You know, everything, almost everything has eyes, or ears or other kinds of things that we would call senses, right? You know, certainly all the all the fauna, if you want to call, you know, the insects and the fish and the animals and the birds, they all have a lot of the same things. We all have, you know, we have taste buds for God's sakes. We have stomachs, we have digestive systems, we poop, everything poops. <laughs> you know, we're it's and it and it all works together. It's all I don't know, designed is exactly the right word, but it's all intel incredibly intelligent. And and that's the great gift of this, of life altogether. And and the great tragedy is that so many of us miss it and don't have the opportunity. And in many cases, that's because it's simply not because of their own misunderstanding. It's also perhaps even more so because of the disconnect of the people who have controlled their worlds you know, the secular and religious authorities and the corporations and so on who don't know who they are and therefore are doing things that are harmful to the planet and each other. I mean, you know, putting people, you know, sitting in one spot doing the same repetitive thing for 10, 12 hours a day in Taiwan or someplace for a minimum amount of income and no connection to the actual product that they're making or anything like that. That to me is just a sort of a nuanced version of slavery. Um, but that's just one, you know, one of many, many examples or ways of look or, you know, aspects of the whole quote unquote problem. And then you add in the uh, sort of how it's, a, it's a, like a combination of the kind of visions and intuitions of people like Chris Bache and other mystical, mystically oriented people and multiple indigenous peoples, uh, communities from around the world who have been essentially seeing this coming at us for hundreds of years, if not longer, but certainly for the last 500 years, they've seen this coming. They've often seen, they saw the coming of the Europeans before they came. They knew they were in for what they often refer to as a 500 year dark age. And they've long, long predicted that this would be the time when it all <clears throat> comes to a head. And so there needs to be a radical re-understanding of who we are. I'm hopeful because necessity is the mother of invention. I believe in our potential. I believe in our basic, essential, unconditioned nature as beings connected to the divine, shards of the divine, if you will, and that we all have that capability of releasing all these things that stand in the way and cause us, especially those of us, perhaps, no, everybody really, but you know, the, the, the more power you have, the more potential you have for doing harm in that sense, right? On that note, I, I think that part of the vision is it's going to come from the bottom up as well, you know, it's not going to come, the, the politicians are going to sort of gradually go, oh, this is which way the parade is going, I'm going to run in front of it and, you know, 
give people the impression that I've been leading, you know, but, you know, let's just take a discussion of climate, you know, you know, reel, reel your tape back 15 or 20 years and look at the kind of things that people were not saying about climate in debates for elections and so on. And then go back to this year or last year and look at the fact that, you know, well, in most places, most, most sensible countries and places, you can't, certainly in Canada, you can't have a, like a presidential, we call them prime minister debate without people addressing the climate, you know, and regardless of how poor a job the world is doing it right now, the conversation has shifted increasingly in that direction. And it's going to shift more and more in that direction. And it's going to be driven by consciousness transformation and activism from young people, the Greta Thunbergs of the world, and so on and so on, which is why I said right at the get-go that, you know, psychedelics aren't the be-all and the end-all and the only thing that's going to do it. I just, you know, along with many others, think that they're an essential part of the, 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 that, the change of consciousness that is absolutely essential now. Right. Yeah. And I know that this call for a change of consciousness has uh-huh. been around for a, quite a while. And it, I'm happy to see this psychedelic renaissance occurring mm-hmm. yeah but you know again i know that, that this has been something that goes back at least you know about 50 years i was thinking when you were talking about your experience one of the things that a book that came to mind which i think was published in around 1970 1971 the greening of america mm-hmm. i forget the i remember that I book to, i yeah, read it yeah <laughs> Yeah, I want to say it's Reich, but I'm, I'm not sure, but he makes the same point, you know, and there was this excitement in that book about this is going to happen and there's going to be mm-hmm. this transformation of consciousness and we're going to get right with the environment. And I think it just took a little bit longer than what the author thought it would take, <laughs> right? But so much of this, I, you know, I don't know, I, I think that many people when they think of the climate crisis, think of it in terms of science Mm -hmm. and maybe science only. And they don't necessarily think Mm -hmm. about it in terms of value or Mm -hmm. in terms of spirit, spirituality. And and I agree with you a hundred percent that we need to address the spiritual aspect of all of this. And one of the things that a couple of the authors in the book spoke about was a kind of, they spoke about alienation, which you've addressed, you know, that we are separate from not just the world or separate from nature, but also separate from our communities. And we've been separated from ourselves mm-hmm. in many ways. And in connection to that, there was also this idea of remembering and I'm trying to see here. Let's see. Yeah, I've got Belinda. I, I don't know if I'm going to say her last. I'm probably going to slaughter her last name, but it's a show. Ariacha's essay, The Turning of the Soil, where she discusses alienation, mm-hmm. separation, and a deep amnesia. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, and Jamie Will and their mm-hmm. essay, Wheel, the cosmic, Wheel, Wheel, the Wheel, yeah, Wheel, yeah. Yeah. The cosmic orphan in the wound of the world mm. talks about anamnesis, a deep remembering. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about these in the sense, especially remembering of mm-hmm. how 
and this is part of that sort of shamanic initiation and this death and rebirth process that Chris Bache talks about. And in part of, especially in many indigenous cultures, the shamanic initiation involves a taking apart mm. and then being put back together. And it seems to me that that's where we need to be right now to recognize this rebirth, but to remember ourselves because we've already been torn apart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why I would use terms like unconditional reality or just reality for that matter, right? My old Buddhist teacher used to talk about how the awakening process is a process of landing on what is not something that we made up, not a belief system, set of concepts, dogmat, dogma, or any of that sort of thing, but what is. And, and in fact, you know, you mentioned Jamie Wheel. There's a, there's a line or a quote in there that he quotes Anne Shulgin saying something to the effect that, you know, one of the things that you potentially discover, and I've, I've had this experience more than once with psychedelics, where you feel like you've come home you know, it's the aha experience. And, right. and it's, you know, it's unarguable, it's un undebatable, it's not something you can, you know, <clears throat> prove other than by experiencing it. You know, strangely enough, perhaps, I don't quite know how this happened. But I believe that some very valuable teachings from Jesus somehow got through 2000 years of bureaucracy, mistranslations, control freaks, etc, etc. And one of those is the notion of the peace that passes all understanding. Mm. It's that deep, deep sense of connection. I've, I've experienced it several times on psychedelics, and it's, in a sense, the ultimate realization. And it's, and it's the same as love. You know, there was a reason why the hippies come up, came up with all this love stuff, you know, back in the day, because they'd have these experiences and, you know, and they'd go, oh, you know, the universe is made of love in that sense, right? It's a flowing energy. And, our, you know, <clears throat> our potential is to, in a sense, surrender into it, relax into it. And, you know, on the way, perhaps, you know, continue to bump into the ways that we prevent it. There's, you know, the poet, the mystic poet Rumi, you know, the, mm -hmm. the great old, yeah, he had a good one. I'm probably misquoting him here, but I, you know, the gist of it is that so you don't need to seek for love. You only need to look at the ways that you prevent it in yourself, right? So that's that's the work. And, and I think <clears throat> the more people recognize that that's, in a sense of everything that's going on in this planet, that right there is what you might call the great open secret, you know? I often have this image in my, in my mind of, as if we're all walking around with our heads down, looking at our toes or something like that and, and thinking, you know, and worrying and, you know, all this stuff in our heads. And then right above us is the light, you know, it's like, oh, if you could just lean back a little bit, quiet your mind, look up, you go, oh, you know, I'm in, I mean, I'm simplifying it into a metaphor, of course, but or an image, but uh, you realize that we are, we are home. We, we, and so the, the great work, if you, if you want to put it that way, for individuals is learning to trust that, you know, we're, this is why I mentioned earlier why that, you know, how the, the psychedelics are sometimes referred to as ego dissolvers, right. because they actually potentially dissolve you out of that. And, and that can be incredibly scary, 
but it also can be incredibly affirming. You know, once you've had some experiences like that, you, you sense it changes you. It changes your perspective on who you are. That's why I mentioned, you know, regarding the Johns Hopkins work that <clears throat> it was interesting, you know, when they did the follow-up studies, the people who had the most mystical experiences or described themselves of having the most mystical experiences with, with the psilocybin that work they did there, were the ones who changed their attitude the most about their cancer. It was really having what changed it for them was tuning into the fact that they're in, you know, an eternal universe of peace, if you will, or that it comes out of nothing and creates. And that if you can open up to that all as well, some famous mystic from centuries ago said, all is well and all shall be well, you know? <laughs> yeah. Then my old, uh, um, <clears throat> the guy who used to run a lot of the Native Ameri American church ceremonies, they call those people roadmen. Hmm. He said something really interesting one morning when they do the talking after the long night of work on the, you know, with the medicine and whatnot, and then they express themselves in the morning when they're still in the teepee. And he said one thing one time that I, I puzzled over for a long time, and I, th I think I've come closer and closer to actually understanding it. At first, I thought, how is that possible? He said, when you say you're well, you're well. And I thought, okay, what the heck does that actually mean? If you say you're well, if I just say, okay, I'm well, well, the, 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 the key word there is say. What does, what, what does that actually mean? You know, it's not just a simple statement. It means when you actually have unequivocal conviction and confidence that you are well, then the, your wellness, in a sense, falls, falls into place. That we are well by nature. And so that's why I mentioned a few moments ago this notion of trust, developing trust, that what we're afraid of is that we'll be annihilated. And in a funny way, maybe some aspects of us will be annihilated. But, but those who have been all the way, as it were, you know, they they take pains to say, you won't lose anything that's essential. You know, it'll just be a lot better once you are able to do that healing work. In the context of all this, perhaps for your listeners or viewers, I I, I want to put a little bit of a a kind of a qualifier on some of this in regard to healing work altogether and in in this case in the context of our conversation regarding psychedelics in particular there is a sidetrack or danger of being too focused on your own journey too self-absorbed too you know, hate to say narcissistic but that would be a more extreme version of it too i don't know humorless even intent on your own, on one's own welfare and one's own healing in that sense. These can be sidetracks. And it's, it's actually well known on the spiritual path. You know, the, the Tibetan Buddhists talk about the arhat mentality, which is the mentality that, you know, you're awakening for yourself. Well, there's no such thing, I think, basically, is what it comes down to. That's still an illusion in, this, in that sense. So, so the way the way I sometimes the metaphor I sometimes like to apply to this is let's say you've got a really nice car but it needs repair needs maintenance it needs repair 
ideally you do the work that needs to be done so that you can drive the car safely and effectively to take you where you want to go. But if you just spend the rest of your life tinkering with the car in the garage and refining it, you're not using the car for what it was designed to be used for ultimately. And, you know, no offense to people who just treat the car as an object of beauty, but, you know, I think the metaphor serves here. And similarly, the healing of oneself is actually just the beginning it's what get our, gets our car ready to take on the road. And then what do you do? You know, and then it's like, all you know, I think, I think we're in a very, very unusual time. I mean, I guess that may be obvious by now from the, you know, the, the, the train of conversation we've been following here. But I think this is a far from equilibrium situation that's actually, that is unprecedented on this planet. You know, some people might say, oh, yeah, well, there have been you know, lots of crises in the past, but we've never had 8 billion people on the planet before. We've never stressed the carrying capacity of the planet like this. And then you add in, if you're willing to, all these other visions that I mentioned and the indigenous prophecies that go way back and are and from many parts of the world. And they're all saying, now, it's come to a head now. This is what Chris Bache received over and over again in his visions that, you know, millions of years or, you know, hundreds of thousands of years or whatever of, of development and karmic development all are coming to a head now. And it's not about, oh, we, this is me, you know, we're the special generation or anything like that. And it's not even about great excitement, like you mentioned about the Greening of America book. That was a, there was a lot of naivety at that time. I was around at that time. I read that book, you know, and, and there was this kind of, a sweet, you might say, delusion that that paradise was just around the corner, you know? Now, you know, people like Chris Bates, they're not saying paradise is around the corner. They're saying we are going into a death-rebirth process, which is probably going to be extremely difficult, quite painful. Sorry to have to put that part of it into the equation, but without that, without the emptying out of the dysfunctional ways that we have seen ourselves and therefore conducting affairs on around the planet, there will be no room for this new vision to come in. This is, this is one of the central visions. Ken Littlefish, the same roadman that I mentioned earlier, he said that he and some of his associates have had the same vision, which is that the crack, as Leonard put it in the world, as it were, will get big enough. The, the, the dysfunctional trajectory of planetary affairs will become increasingly destabilized. And as that happens, there will be less and less of the old to fall back on, the old way of seeing who we are and what we've been doing. And as that happens, there will be room for a new vision and the vision will come in and it will make sense. Terence McKenna, I think he's stole this quote from somebody and kind of rewrote it a little bit, but that's fine. He said something like that. If the truth can be told so as to be understood, it will be believed, mm -hmm. right? If the truth can be told so as to be understood, it will be believed. So the vision and the prayer and the hope is that there will come a point or a gradually dawning point, so to speak, when enough people will be open to hearing the truth of who we are and our interconnectedness with everything and how we have to participate, roll up our sleeves. That's what I meant, what I meant by the far from equilibrium situation, the not normal conditions. Yes, there's always going to be a need for creating beauty. Absolutely. You know, the artists are part of the work, you know, create beauty whenever possible, but all ways that we can participate in helping change, you know, whether it be growing our own gardens, activism, advocacy, you know, whatever it is, you know, starts with 
from the ground up, from the empty stage, as it were, doing your inner healing work and then, you know, getting yourself roadworthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The way I usually frame this is, and I borrow a little bit from the Buddha here, is that we all suffer, we're all broken, and we all mm -hmm. have some healing to do. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. And and you have so many good points here. And it's another thing I would kind of add to this is that in addition to all of these sort of social changes and environmental stressors that we're experiencing. Uh -huh. And I can't speak to the rest of the world, but I know that in the United States, we're also seeing a transformation of religion mm -hmm. where people are fleeing the traditional religions Correct. and embracing the, you know, I guess their title is spiritual, but not religious. Mm -hmm. And it <laughs> seems like, you know, this is happening at a very specific time. And I wanted to ask you about this because one of the quotes from one of your entries in, in the book is you said, ayahuasca and other similar medicines are rapidly spreading at this time precisely because of our dire planetary situation. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to ask you if you could maybe explain that a little bit more. Maybe you already have, but the question I had is, is Gaia behind this rapid spread? <laughs> is it synchronicity? <clears throat> what exactly is going on? Okay, we're gonna have to go woo-woo on this one. Fine. That's fine. Yeah. Go woo-woo. Yeah, very interesting question. Thank you. By the way, don't let me forget to address, if we still have time at some point, the issue of people becoming more and more anxious and falling into traps. I mean okay. cu culturally and so on, because okay. times are also getting more dangerous that way. You know, Donald Trump is an example of that for you know, sure. you know, people are looking for strong leaders because of their anxiety. And so right. this is why it's so important to have these messages come out now that there is something else going on well as i say got to go a little bit woo woo on this one and i'm going to use i'm going to say it in terms of an anecdote or a little story uh I know a, a psychic, I won't use his name, we'll call him K for the moment. He's incredible. I bumped into him after 30 years, his name kept coming back up in my mind. I'd seen him once year, you know, 30 years ago in Los Angeles and he blew my mind back then and it kept popping up. So I, I connected with him again, he's still going, he's in his late 70s now down in the you know, Los Angeles area. And so the long and the short of all that is that once we'd kind of finished talking about me and my journey, we did an over the phone tarot reading we got talking about the world's you know sort of state of affairs and he said that the, I, I don't know what word to use like the spirits uh as it were the non you know incorporated intelligences are paying very close attention to what's going on and they are <clears throat> involving themselves more than ever because they're seeing that we're not doing what we need to do Okay, so I said to him something like, well, okay, so my understanding is, you know, God can't do it for you, you have to do it yourself, or, or something like that. And he said, oh, yeah, okay, so it, it, it kind of works like this, the veils are becoming thinner between the material and the spirit, you know, whatever you want to call that. So, so that people have greater access to their inner world their of intuition, and vision and insight. So if you can pay attention, you know, if you're able to focus enough, if you're able to calm yourself enough, more and more people are getting, are in a sense, learning to be receptacles for 
whatever you want to call it, the, the guidance of spirit or the muse or whatever, right? So in conjunction with that, this is not woo-woo. Well, some people might consider it woo-woo, but it was a palpable experience for me. I've probably done ayahuasca 30 or 40 times, something like that, in different contexts, including, as I mentioned at the beginning, down in Peru, in the jungle, in a maloca, and also with the uh, syncretic religion church up here, Santo Daime, which is also from Brazil, but there's chapters all over the place, which is what you were talking about, that I mentioned the spread of this medicine in various ways. In any case, this one was the strongest ayahuasca experience I ever had. Normally, you take these things at 8 in those situations at 8 p.m. And around about 3 p.m., you're ready to fall asleep, 3 or 4. You get 3 or 4 hours sleep, then they get you up and they have a sharing session or something like that. So I never got a wink of sleep that night. Not one wink. I was, you know, it was on all night. So at one point, and this has happened to me a couple times before, it wasn't, you know, in a in a conventional sense, auditory or visual. It was a sense, a very distinct sense of a presence or what I called presences. And so I felt these presences and, and I said, who are you? And I got this answer again, not as an auditory, quote unquote, hallucination, but as a, you know, telepathic, you know, transference or whatever. And the answer was, we offer love. <clears throat> it's unlimited. And the only decision that you need to make is how much of it to accept, hmm. right? So that's the kind of guidance that uh, that one can ex- potentially expose oneself to. And again, I'll just, you know, beat this drum once more. <laughs> context, right? This was in the context of a trained ayahuascaro who'd been apprenticed for years with a master, years, you know, and now had gone out on his own and had his own center, knew all the songs. And in fact, the songs are often referred to as living spirits themselves. You know, they're the voice of spirit. So this is another key issue for this kind of work going forward on the material realm is that if you're going to be leading ayahuasca ceremonies, folks, my view is you should get yourself properly trained under a master or in some kind of context for years and years and don't even think about leading ayahuasca ceremonies until you know who you are that your your motivation is clear you're not in it for power you're not in it primarily for money or sex or anything like that and you have a relationship to the spirit the masters the owners as ailton Cranach in the book says the people that can do the therapeutic work with these medicines they have a, 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 a contract a direct real living relationship with what he calls the masters or owners of the plants, right? This is such a far, you know, from equilibrium idea for our culture, but it's something that has to sink in. There are spirits, there are owners, there are masters of these plants. And we, and as I understand it, not as a practitioner, but just from all the people I've talked to and read about and heard from, the, the people that are going to work with those plants and substances need to have that relationship with them and they need to take their time. You don't bloody well go to South America for three months and do 20 ayahuasca ceremonies and have some supposed shaman tell you you're ready to lead them. No, you are not ready to lead them after two or three months, folks. I'm sorry. You know, there's a lot of money potentially to be made in this world, and there's always the potential for charlatans. So let's 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 pay attention to that as we go forward. The so-called psychedelic re- renaissance is fraught. It's not a given that it's going right. to play out properly. There needs to be a lot of careful thought, guidance, 
you know, intelligence, responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I agree yeah. with that wholeheartedly. Yeah. And, you know, I know that there are in professional psychiatric circles, there are uh -huh. trainings that are coming about, but I would also very much like to see uh, spiritual practitioners having mm -hmm. to undergo something just as rigorous in order to do this because like you said there are charlatans out there and then there yeah. are also corporate interests that you are bet going to want to yeah. make money off of all of this absolutely yeah oh and by the way regarding the you know the influence of gaia i can't say for a fact but you know the, that's why i told you mm -hmm. that little story about you know hearing from the ones that say we offer love it may be some people have said things like this that the owners of the plants as it were, or whatever, whoever, all that is, you know, in the spirit world, they care so deeply about this planet and us and everything on it, you know, whether it be like the tiniest insect or the bird in the sky, they care so deeply about it all. And it's such an amazing, you know, one way I like to think of it is it's, it's an experiment. It's an art project. Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, oh, let's, let's, let's pull together a planet that has this particular con configuration of, you know, you know, oxygen and nitrogen and carbon dioxide and water and air and earth and all these elements and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I'm grossly oversimplifying. I mean, you know, I think the true kinds of artists are art, artists in that regard also have a sense that it's an interactive process that you let it go and let it develop on its own. But you might say, if we can take this as maybe a little a bit of a fable or something, you know, that, that they're the spirits that care and they see that we're not getting it. And that's why I mentioned that, you know, they're making themselves in a sense more available or their wisdom more available. And again, because Maybe this is a nice way to kind of wrap up because I know you'd mentioned you wanted it to be about an hour. Because of the dire need for a change now from the inside out and then extending beyond that, this is where the psychedelics can become very, very useful because they open us up to that kind of, they just open the mind, the brain up to that kind of information potentially, you know, that kind of insight. So both about ourselves, as I mentioned at the very beginning, you know, for looking at where we've gotten in our own way, but also for, you know, connecting us to reality. And very, very important to pay attention to, to the sources of that as well, though, like, let's not go off on our high horse going, hey, folks, I've got all the great answers here, you know, Terrence McKenna was like, you know, be skeptical of of the information. If they sell, tell you to go and start a new religion or something like that, yeah, you might question that a little bit. You know, where's that coming from? You know, there was a guy that I was trying to end here, but this is kind of funny. Okay. One of the trips I was down on in, in, in the Iquitos area of Peru, there was a fellow, no offense to him, if for any reason he happens to listen to this, he'd done a bunch of ayahuasca and he had this vision to build a floating kind of like retreat, study, learning, mystery school center on the Amazon, right off of Quito's. And he'd, he'd raised a whole whack of money and he was trying to raise money for this and he was speaking about it. And the whole thing just sank, literally, like the actual floating wooden structure that he'd built sank. He didn't have, he had a vision and maybe the vision was, you know, good in some ways, but he hadn't really grounded himself enough to sort of feel his way through this and take it one step at a time, you know? So having the visions is great, 
having a grounding. Maybe I'll just end with this one because this is a nice guideline from my old Buddhist teacher from Tibetan Buddhism. It's called the heaven, earth, and man principle. The word man should be changed to human or something like that. Heaven is the connection to the vision. It's what artists would call the muse or the voice of spirit in this particular case. Earth is the ability to ground that, like to, you know, if you're, say, a painter, to know that you have, you know, you can, you know your colors, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the meeting of heaven and earth produces the result, which is the man principle or the human principle. So we need a lot more heaven, but a lot more. This was the weakness with the 60s and so on, I think, was there was a lot of heaven but not nearly enough earth to make that connection. It was a lot of idealism and stuff like that, but not the groundedness. But we're in a much more serious situation now. So I think, you know, there's a lot more maturity about about that issue. Yeah. 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 And I've gotten to a place personally that I don't understand this idea of awakening. I don't trust anyone who claims to be awakened Mm -hmm. at all and it seems to me that we have to the way i always describe it is we have to learn to surf the waves of uncertainty right now absolutely yeah probably better than claiming absolute knowledge over anything well just the mere fact that you've made the claim is a little bit dubious right (laughs) why why would you do that you know really it's a little bit questionable no it's a it's a good point there's a there's a kind of a concept in in Buddhism of the don't know mind or the beginner's mind. You know, my bookshelf behind here has one of my favorite little books from back in the, I think it was back in the seventies. A Japanese Zen master named Shunryu Suzuki Roshi. Roshi being is the honorific. Shunryu Suzuki is the name he went by. Anyway, the book is called Zen Mind Beginner's Mind. And one of the little short essays in it is something to the effect of, I forget which part comes first, but it amounts to the same thing. In these, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. You know, and there's the famous thing from Plato, you know, the only thing I know is that I don't know, right? So that's, that's just the attitude of humility and curiosity and openness. Yeah. Dennis McKenna actually refers to this in the book where he says, you know, the thing about psychedelics, which makes them valuable is they show you how little, you know, and they, they, they make you humble for that reason. Are they better? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And it seems uh, I'll wrap up here. You know, I know that one of the authors, Zoe Helene, she says, we need rapid cultural transformation. Mm -hmm. And, and you're saying that similar, but that we can't rush it. I, but I also like someone noted, and I, I know I'm going to screw this one up, Thais <laughs> Tunkaporta. Yunkaporta. Uh, Yunkaporta. The title of that essay was The Tether, and he asked this question, how can you act outside the box when you can't even see outside it? And I liked that because, especially in the United States, this is a business thing. I've been to meetings all the time where people are like, we have to think outside the box. We have to think outside the box. And what mm-hmm. usually going on in my mind is if you actually encountered someone who was thinking outside the box, your head would explode. And <laughs> I see the value of the psychedelics as truly opening people up to seeing mm-hmm. outside the box. Making the box a lot bigger. <laughs> yeah. 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 For sure. yeah. For sure. Potentially. Yeah. 
Yeah. So before we wrap up, did you want to go back to these cultural traps, the anxiety and the cultural traps? Well, yes, I know we've kind of running on here, but I'll do say it really briefly because I do think this is central and thanks for reminding me to bring it back up again. When people think they know what's going on and things are going well, they're more comfortable, they're more relaxed in general. As things become unstable, one of my favorite examples, so to speak, a favorite is not a really nice word to put on, the, on a horrible situation like that, is what happened in Germany in the 1920s and 30s. They lost the Great War, so to speak, the First World War. They were hit with extremely, apparently, onerous reparations, meaning big bucks, to the League of Nations and so on. And so they didn't recuperate as well as other countries during the Roaring Twenties, as they're sometimes called. And when the Depression hit, it hit Germany extremely hard. And so an incredible, incredible amount of uncertainty and anxiety was present. And along comes a psychopath who just had the chops, the intelligence, the, you know, articulate eloquence to be able to capitalize on that. And so he did it by telling them that it wasn't their fault, that the international banking system had done this to them, and that that system was controlled by the Jewish people. So now they had a very clear enemy. And that gave them, apparent, that gave, that energized them is an extremely dangerous energy, but it gave them that energy. I mean, the, the results, you know, spoke for themselves, right? You know, he was actually a, a demagogue. He was a dictator. I mean, he shut down, you know, parliament or whatever, and, you know, started putting all these repressive measures. They, 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 like, you can't have jazz music. It's the devil's music, you know? Seriously, all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, executing or whatever they did, you know, to people with disabilities, for God's sakes, you know? I mean, it was just an incredibly sick illusion, but it was all able to happen because of the anxiety and the ungroundedness that people felt, you know, economically, and that they didn't know who they were and their, you know, their comfortable situations didn't exist anymore. And so they were vulnerable. And so we're in that kind of situation again. It's always there to some degree, but the, you know, the old ways, the stability of conditions are falling apart and they will probably get a lot worse. You know, the climate itself will probably continue to wreak havoc and destabilize, you know, economic, you know, certainties or whatever, you know. And as that happens, people, when they're anxious, are looking for some kind of succor, as the old term is, you know, comfort, something that they can hang on to, some kind of life raft, you know, but it's an illusion. But it results in people grabbing on to people like Donald Trump, who I'm sorry if you anyone watching this is a Donald Trump supporter, but I'm sorry, folks, you're not seeing clearly if you think that about Don, that he's reliable. If you really could get rid of your need, if you could just even for five minutes undo your need for a strong figure who seems to like he'll be cleaning up the swamp or whatever, and just look clearly with your antenna up at this man, he's totally self-concerned. That's all he is but he knows how to manipulate people. And I'm sorry I have to pick on him, but you know there are numerous people like that around the world, these tyrants, and that's the danger. And so what we need is you know, part of the message, part of the education, as it were, I think that's really important now is for people to know that that is a potential. You know, it's, it's a very understandable potential that as you develop or as you fall into increasing uncertainty, fear, and anxiety, you look for comfort, you look for solidity of some kind, and you're going to end up potentially looking in dangerous places, right? Demagogues that go 
ah, I can take advantage of this, you know. We have one potentially brewing up here in Canada, too, by the name of Pierre Poiliev. He's working the fear card. He's with the, the right-wing party, the more or less right-wing party called the Conservative Party. And he's, you know, he's saying, do you think everything in Canada is broken, right? Mm. No, everything in Canada is not broken, but people who feel aggrieved or whatever, they're going to go, yeah, right, everything is broken, you know? And Pierre, you're the one who's going to lead us to the promised land. So I just wanted to point that out, that it's a central part of the education that's needed right now is to let people know that they are mentally, emotionally at risk. And so be careful of that, because what's really going on is an inevitable death rebirth process. And if we don't have an idea that there's a potential rebirth there, that the light is at the end of the tunnel and not a train bearing down that's going to kill us all, then, <clears throat> then you know, things could be really dangerous. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. And yeah. that's actually part of the origin of my not liking the language of awakening, mm -hmm. because so many people that were sort of Trump supporters were also buying into very specific conspiracy theories. And often mm -hmm. their language mm -hmm. would be, you need to wake up. Mm -hmm. and, and they thought that they had and I'm like, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, there's only one kind of awakening. And that's the awakening to our true nature, the peace that passes all understanding, the the connection in to the creative flow of life altogether. Oh. And it has nothing to do with your belief system. Nothing. Right. In fact, your belief systems just block it out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, it gets back to that uh, Zen mind, beginner's mind. We have to yeah. empty ourselves of our beliefs. Uh-huh. So it takes work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. As, as you know, I've said a few times and, you know, obviously central to our conversation today, the psychedelics have an essential role to play in this, but it's also just work that we all need to do in our own way. You know, we, we need to slow down. We, need, we really do. You know, most of us need to slow down. We need to allow more space in our minds whenever possible, whether that be through a simple follow the breath meditation or whatever, spending time sitting in front of a Gerbera with a joint, <laughs> you know, or watching a bee, watching some bees move from flower to flower in this incredible dance of interconnectedness or whatever, you know. And then just allow us to be who we are, the peace that passes all understanding that's available. It's our true nature. That's what Buddhists keep teaching over and over and over again. That's all that the word Buddha means. Buddha, the word Buddha just means awake, you know, it's just the the historical buddha is just supposedly a person who woke up to that true nature without any theory you know right. theory comes out of experience but not the other way around of course yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure yeah yeah i i have a lot i can say about that but <laughs> given our timing what i'll do is instead thank you for that and we'll say that that's a great place to end but let me ask you where can people go to find out more about you and your work well, thanks for asking that question. Appreciate it. Yeah, well, I have a website. The The term Stephen Gray Vision is sort of all over a bunch of things. So and for the website, it's, it's all one word, of course. So it's S-T-E-P-H-E-N, 
G-R-A-Y, not G-R-E-Y, G-R-A-Y Vision, StephenGrayVision.com. And that's also, I have a YouTube channel, Stephen Gray Vision, and in that case, Stephen Gray are mushed together, and then there's a space before Vision. So Stephen Gray, all one word, and then Vision, that's the YouTube channel. I'm on Facebook at Stephen Gray Vision, same, you know, configuration of breaks or whatever, et cetera, et cetera. And I haven't quite figured out this dang, you know, how to get on the newsletter scenario here. So I'm going to say that, you know, with the hope that nobody writes me a poison pen letter or something like that, I'm going to give you my email address. So if somebody would like to get on my newsletter, it's Stephen Gray, same spelling, medicine at gmail.com. Stephen Gray, medicine at gmail.com. Just write me and say, could you add me to your newsletter? And just so that people know, I... I, I don't, it's not a particularly newsy newsletter. I'm not constantly putting out articles and all this kind of stuff. I mostly just use it for informing people of a few key things like our conference coming up or the latest interview I've done or, you know, some other little interesting and useful thing. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. I will put links to as many of those as I can in the show notes and video descriptions mm -hmm. um, so that people can have easy access to them. And I'll also put in links for the book, How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World. So people can Excellent. Uh, get a copy of that. And I encourage them to do so. There's a lot of fine wisdom in there. Thanks. All right. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciated speaking with you. So thank you. You're most welcome. Happy to share this, whatever level of understanding I have about all this. It's it's nice level of understanding, good level of understanding. And that's a wrap on episode 65 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience or view this on Spotify. Now, before I say anything else, I'd like to give a special shout out to Stephanie Bidet, for being my second Rebel Spirit Radio patron. Stephanie, I am immensely grateful for your generosity and support. You are awesome and truly a Rebel Spirit. And I look forward to you joining me on the Cocktail Apocalypse. The first round's on me. For anyone else who would like to contribute to this podcast by becoming a patron, there are currently four levels of membership. Seeker, Sage, Adept, and Guru. Some of the perks available include early access to videos, shout outs to members, a members only Facebook page, access to the Rebel Spirit Radio Discourse server, a monthly book club, and the opportunity to join me and special guests for a monthly cocktail apocalypse, happy hour at the end of the world. You can find the link for the Patreon in the show notes or video description. And of course, if you'd still rather make a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. Another way that you can help the podcast is to share it with friends, family, or even coworkers that you think will enjoy it. That really is one of the best ways you can help and support the podcast. I often kid that I'm here in the Southland doing missionary work in regards to religion, spirituality, and ecology, psychedelics, and consciousness, and how all of this can help us heal humanity's relationship with the sacred earth. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, please share the good news. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help, especially if you listen on Apple. If you have a moment to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review. And please subscribe. For those viewing on YouTube, 
please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.